Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, November 1st. It's time for us to draw some conclusions from the past few weeks of results we've seen unfold on the ATP Tour. Now, it is never wise to read too far into one week's results. However, you look at the players we saw succeed last week. They are players we have grown accustomed to seeing succeed here in 2021. In particular, we have to start with Alex Virov, who, of course, faces significant allegations of physical, emotional abuse. He's currently under investigation by the ATP Tour. It's also fair to say he may just be the best player in men's tennis cruises on his way to his fifth title of the season. Straight set victories over Carlos Alcaraz and Francis Tiafa want to talk about the tennis Alex Zverev is playing. Simply put, 2022, it's Grand Slam or bust for Zverev. I want to make the case for that statement on today's show. Of course, I also want to talk about Francis Tiafo reaching his first ever ATP 500 final, third ATP final of his career, first, I believe, since 2018. Tiafo was spectacular and his come from behind victory over Yannick Sinner in the semifinals was one of, if not the match of the season. Certainly so exciting for us fans to enjoy in the way Francis Tiafo engages crowds, I suppose, became a topic of controversy this weekend, although I don't really think it was a controversy, and I'll explain all of that on today's show as well. But of course, that was just one tournament we saw unfold on the men's side. We also had the action in St. Pete. Marin Cilic in title town once again this season, winning, I believe now, what, eight out of nine matches or nine out of ten, something like that, on his way uh, to the title in St. Pete, made the final last week in Moscow, this time is able to win the final three-set victory for him over American Taylor Fritz, who I also want to talk about on today's show. And speaking of Americans, a couple of Americans winning titles on the ATP Challenger Tour, J.J. Wolf over in Vegas, Brandon Nakashima over in France. I want to talk about the success of the 1998 Americans in general. They killed over in Las Vegas this past weekend. Of course, Nakashima cruising to another challenger title sort of shows us where he's at in his career entering 2022. Oscar Ota, another big result. Nicolas Jari working his way back towards the ATP Top 100. And then, of course, some ITF results for us to touch on. Rinki Hijikata just continues to kill it this summer. I believe he's 31-10 and 10 now uh, since the start of June and Look, will Ricky come back to UNC when you're having this much success on the pro circuit? That's certainly a question to ask, and I know many of our listeners are also college tennis fans as well, so I want to explore that a bit on today's podcast, talk about why I still have faith in former Kalamazoo finalist Vassal Kirkhoff, who won an ITF title this week as well, and so much more. Fantastic episode that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy, of course, before we get into it. Two quick things. You may have already seen it on your podcast feed if you want to hear what happened last week on the WTA Tour. Hop on over to the episode I recorded with Tennis Channel, Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. We covered Conte's miraculous run 
to the year-end finals in Guadalajara. We talked Simona Halep, Clara Tawson, Radakanu, Samson Nova, Vekic, and Lee, and so much more. Always enjoy having David on the show, but again, I'm just going to focus on the men's side here on this episode. If you're looking for women's coverage, hop on over to that mini-break podcast feed. If you're looking for extensive challenger coverage, of course, every Monday, Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro, our Crack Rackets contributors cover all of the action over on our Great Shot podcast feed. If you missed any of that content, catch up on it all on the website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, last but not least, have to give a shout out to all of you listeners, to our Crack Rackets family, who uh, Patreon family who help make these podcasts possible and of course to our friends over at Tennis Point the best in the business you heard me say it on part one today so I'll keep it brief here tennis-point.com the promo code is CR15 we are immensely grateful for their support the least we can do ask you to support them as well tennis-point.com the promo code is CR15 with that said let's draw some conclusions And let's start with Alex Zverev. And I know I have already mentioned this in this podcast, but it's a policy here at Crack Rackets. If we're going to talk about Alex Zverev, we have to talk about the uh, allegations he faces off the court. Physical, emotional abuse of his former girlfriend, Alia Sharipova, was written about extensively by our friend Ben Rothenberg in both... uh, Racket Magazine, as well as on Slate.com. If you have not read those pieces yet, I implore you to do so. It was recently announced, I suppose in the past month, that the ATP is currently uh, conducting an investigation into the allegations, particularly, I believe, the incident that happened at Shanghai, uh, which, again, you can read more about if you go read Ben's two pieces. We don't know the outcome of that investigation. We don't know much about that investigation either. But of course, you have to mention that component for Alex Virev because regardless, I I mean, not regardless, that is unequivocally something that factors into his 2022. It's also undeniable at this point, Alex Virev might just be the best player in all of men's tennis. And I'm not, you know, that includes Djokovic. That includes Medvedev. And I know it was Medvedev who went on to win the U.S. Open. Medvedev, who beat Djokovic in straight sets, prevented him from capturing the calendar slam. But let's be clear. Alex Virev, since the start of the Olympics here this season, I believe he's now 22-2 and overall during that stretch of time. Of course, that includes the Olympic title for him where you know he knocks off Hatchinov in the final. He knocks off, uh, I believe, Djokovic in the semifinals coming back from a set and a breakdown, 1-6-6-3-6-1. And you know, then he goes on, wins Cincinnati in his return, gets wins over Rude, Tsitsipas, and Andre Rublev was come from behind for him in that Tsitsipas third set. Looked like he was down and out. Of course, got good wins over Sinner, over Harris uh, at the U.S. Open, had only dropped one set on his way to the semifinals, where again, he was knocked out by Djokovic in a five-set thriller. Of course, one could argue, I don't want to say half a slam, but he probably deserves a quarter of a slam for just, you know, Djokovic had been worn down throughout the course of the event, but Zverev was the nail in the coffin. There was just not much left in the gas tank for Djokovic physically, and of course, you need a full tank of gas if you're facing Alex, uh, if you're facing Daniil Medvedev, Medvedev ultimately knocking him out, but I don't think you can say that U.S. Open loss was a disappointment for Zverev. It certainly was disappointing that he lost that match 7-6 in the third to Taylor Fritz in the Indian Wells quarterfinal. Just felt like it had lined up perfectly for him to win that result. But again, a 7-6 in the third loss. How much are you going to hold that against someone? He then goes on to win this title in Vienna. Drop sets against Demon Hour, against FAA. Did not look good heading into championship weekend, but was dominant against both Alcarez and Francis Tiafo. And you look for Zverev in the five matches he played this week. He was broken a total four times. So again, wasn't broken against Alcarez. Was 
broken once per match in the other uh, matches. And yet, you look at the numbers for him, he went over 80% of his first serve points throughout the course of the week. You look at the number for him overall, he won 84.3% of his first serve points. That's freaking just ridiculous. And you look for him on the second serve, he was winning over 63% of his second serve points on the week. That's freaking ridiculous. Again, you know, was only broken once in four out of his five matches, then wasn't broken against Alcaraz, but was only broken one time in those other matches and always was able to get the breaks back. And just, you know, he only played one match that eclipsed the two-hour mark. That was the two-hour, five-minute affair. And I don't think anyone would call that a particularly grueling physical affair against FAA in the quarterfinals. It's just all working for Alex Vierva at this point, particularly you look for him indoor hard courts of late again wins the title in Vienna here at the end of the season. You look at the end of last year when uh, he was able to win the back-to-back titles in Cologne and, you know, makes the final of the Paris Masters before losing in three to Medvedev. It was a poor showing, I suppose, from losses to Medvedev and Djokovic at the year-end finals, but, you know, losses to Medvedev and Djokovic at the year-end finals. Those are, and a loss to Medvedev in Paris, those are his only three indoor hardcourt losses in the past 15 months. And then just, again, 7-6 in the third loss to Taylor Fritz and a fifth set loss to Djokovic at the U.S. Open. That's it in terms of the hard court losses for him here down the home stretch. And you look for it, you know, just overall on the season. Here are his hard court losses. He's lo- he lost to Djokovic, I believe, one, two, three times. He lost to Medvedev uh, once here this year. He lost to Bublik in Rotterdam. That one was certainly funky. Rusevori in Miami, that was certainly funky. Three-set loss for him came the day after he had knocked off Tsitsipas in the final of Acapulco. Again, that's a schedule loss. Like, there's just not a bad loss for him on hard courts. He separated himself. It's him, it's Medvedev, and it's Djokovic. They're in a tier of their own. And you look, you know, for Zverev, you want to go to the advanced metrics, you want to look at some of the other stats he's compiled, and I'll get into his game and what he did particularly well over Tiafo. but I just want to make this broader case quickly. You just look at what he's accomplished relative to his peers this season. You know, for Alex Zverev, the story for so long was, you know, the A, the, the issues with the double faults, and just B, the ineffectiveness of his second serve. Well, let's be clear, that double fault percentage after reaching a high of 7.2% in 2019, 6.4% in 2020, it's down to 5.5% this season. And of course, that's far from ideal. Uh, that's still far too high if you're Alex Irvin. You do see those serving issues sort of sneak out towards the end of matches. Think the end, that final service game against Carlos Alcaraz. He was so successful on serve. All match was almost broken while serving for the match in that second set. Uh, was broken immediately after breaking Tiago on the first set of the final, and yet you look for him, he's holding serve 85.2% of the time. That's 12th best amongst top 50 players. That's a career high for him. It's unequivocally gotten better. It's a 77.6 first serve win percentage. That's a top 10 number on the ATP Tour. That's a career high for him this season. He's also making two-thirds of his first serves now, 66.7%. That's a career high for, or excuse me, that continues a career high trend for him over these past three years. The first, uh, second serve win percentage up to 51.2%. That's 2.5% above his career average. And just, you know, again, making improvements on that ground. He's 12th in hold percentage, 7th in break percentage here this season. He's breaking serve 29.4% of the time. That would be a career high for Zverev. And again, 
If we're talking a top 12 club right now, it's him, it's Djokovic, it's Medvedev. Now, both of those guys happen to be top 10, but by those three categories, those are your guys. You look at the ELO ratings, overall ELO, it's Djokovic 1, Medvedev 2, Zverev 3. 2021 specific ELO, it's Djokovic 1, Zverev 2, Medvedev 3. You want to start looking at the win totals. Let's do that quickly. You look for... uh, Alex Zverev here this season, uh, 52 total wins. That trails only Stefano Tsitsipas on the year, who's got 55. You've got Kasparud with 51, Medvedev with 50, Nori and Rublev both with 48. But again, Tsitsipas, Zverev, Rude, Medvedev, your 50-win club here this season. A, symbolic of the changing of the guards. B, symbolic of the fact Alex Zverev, as good as anyone from start to finish here this year. He's got 10 quarterfinals on the year. That's tied for fourth. The list of people who have done that, not a surprise. Same guys, Tsitsipas, Rude, Rublev, Nori, Zverev. You look for him in semifinals this season. He's made eight of them. In, you know, that's tied for third. It goes Rublev, Tsitsipas have made nine. He, Djokovic, Ru- uh, and Rude have made eight. You look for him in terms of final appearances. He's made five on the year, 5-0 and oh in the finals he's played this season. That's, you know, tied for the best win percentage with Kasper Rude, who is also 5-0. and oh. It's, you know, tied for the most titles on the season with Rude, with Medvedev. You look, obviously, for uh, them that their five finals trails just Nori, Djokovic, and Medvedev, who have each made six. But, of course, we still got Paris on the horizon. We've still got the year-end finals. Both events, Alexander Zverev, can absolutely win. You want to look at, again, who they're playing as well, the win percentage against those opponents, against top 50 players here this season. Uh, Tsitsipas, 35 and 14, that's the most wins. Zverev's 30 and 11, and that 73% win percentage is second only to Novak Djokovic, who's 23 and 6 against top 50 opponents. You want to go to top 20 opponents. Djokovic has the most wins, 14. Zero's got 12, and by the way, he's 12 and 8. Tsitsipas, 12 and 7. Medvedev, 11 and 6. Rafa, 10 and 4. So again, no matter how you slice it up right now, and I don't think the argument is that, you know, I, is this a, a hot take to say Zverev is a top three guy now, to say he is in the mix for every Grand Slam? Absolutely not, because you look at the Slam results he put together this season. Obviously, it was a little bit disappointing uh, for him at Wimbledon to only end up making, I believe it was a round of 16 there for him uh, before he was knocked out, yes, by FAA in five sets. But semis of the U.S. Open, lost to Djokovic. Semis of Roland Garros, five-set loss to Tsitsipas quarterfinals Australian Open four set loss to Djokovic but he led by a break in three of the four sets the only thing left for Alex Zverev to do is win a Grand Slam and I know there were people who were saying that heading into this season the people who are particularly I suppose aggressive with their expectations for players but now there truly is no other metric to measure Alex Zverev by other than Grand Slam titles he has. And, you know, time after time he'll point out, well, I won the Olympic gold, and that's the biggest title in tennis. And obviously, you take that with a grain of salt. You say what you got to say to have your confidence up, but you just look at the list. Here's the list of active players' most titles. Federer 103, Nadal 88, Djokovic 85, Murray 46, you then got Del Potro 22, Chilich 20, Songa and Zverev. With 18. Let's be clear. Alex Virov, still just 24 years old. You look at the most titles won by players born in the 1990s. Zirov's got 18. That's the most. And he was born 97. That leads. Dominic Team, who's at 17, was born 93. Medvedev's got 13. Dimitrov's got 8. Rayanich has 8. Rublev has 8. You know, again, you look at most finals by the age of 24 of the players on tour. Rafa's got 56. 
Federer had 47, Djokovic had 42, Murray had 30, Zverev had 27. And by the way, he's still 24 years old. He's still got time. You look at the win-loss percentage. Here are the three guys who have won over 80% of their matches this season. Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, I guess Nadal too, but he played fewer than 30 matches. But again, every list you turn to now has Alex Zverev at the top or near, near or at the top of the list. And I just... Use the use your eyes. Look at what he was able to do against Francis Tiafo in that final. Tiafo put so much pressure on him physically. Tried to extend every rally. Tried to get him stretched to the outer thirds. Tried to put pressure on him. Work his way to the net. You look for Zverev. Thirty-seven winners in this match. Eleven unforced errors. Tiafo ten of eighteen at the net. You know, twenty winners only against thirteen unforced errors. Zverev was everywhere, getting his racket on everything, and more often than not, turning defense into offense. Again, you look for Zverev. Nineteen aces on the day. Nineteen aces, and the amount of times he pulverized the you know the forehand return of Tiafo, and as good as Tiafo has gotten is blocking that return and even turning it into a block flat return with depth and drive, and how Francis does that. We'll explore that momentarily, but it didn't matter for Zverev. Just again. His backhand is the stuff you dream of. Technically, just his ability to get drive on that ball cross-court. It's so easy for him to get around that ball and the strength in his legs to just drive through that ball. Of course, he can turn it down the line at will. I don't think his forehand can be attacked as easily anymore. And unless you are hitting your forehand with elite pace, he just has that much more time to step into his forehand. And when he's stepping into his forehand, he can hit it down the line. He can hit it cross. He can hit it short angle. He's gone from being someone who was trying to become a good volleyer who had decent hands to a guy who now knows where to go, knows what to do, and is a confident volleyer and hits his overhead about as confidently as anyone you're going to see in the men's game. He won 83 84% of his first serve points throughout the course of the week. He absorbed the heavy topspin of Carlos Alcaraz and used it as food to the fodder of his game. And again, for him against Alcaraz, 84% win percentage on his first serves. He was 38 of 47 on service points for the match. He lost nine points on serve against Carlos freaking Alcaraz, who ranks third in break percentage right now amongst top 50 players. Third! And he won only nine points on serve against Alex Zverev. Yes, it was an indoor hard course. Yes, he's six foot six. But he's answering the question of can, you know, again, has the serve caught up to the rest of the games, to the physical skill set? The answer is an unequivocal yes. And I know longtime listeners of the, this podcast will know Regardless of what I think of him personally, I have always been fond of Alex Zverev's tennis game. I think there are 10 to 15 minutes in every match where he just does things that I've never seen anyone at that size with that skill level and just that execution pull off. And it's just, it's different than I've ever seen before. He can play a level of power tennis with a fluidity, of, you know, with the size and the fluidity of Daniil Medvedev without losing, you know, an inch of power generation. He's got. Burrich's firepower from the baseline with Medvedev's fluidity with, you know, a serve that might be better than both of them. It's crazy. And again, the chops, the big moments, how he handles pressure, that is unequivocally going to be the story for him in 2022 because now the expectations are clear. He has won everything else. There's nothing left for him to win but a Grand Slam. You name it. Olympics, he's done it. Masters, he's done it. 500s, he's done it. Year-end finals, he's done it. Make Grand Slams, he's done it. He's just got to win one. That's it. That is now the litmus test for Alex Vera. Does he win a Grand Slam in 2022? It'll be interesting to see Djokovic here down the home stretch. And of course, Djokovic never loses in Australia. 
but it's pretty hard to deny that Alex Vera. I know this isn't a, a hot take, but I think he's, you know, it's him, Medvedev, Djokovic next year. They have separated themselves. I think it's time to put Tsitsipas a little bit behind that group because just again, even on even on clay, Zverev's making semifinals and winning Masters 1000 events, and he's dominant on indoor hard courts and you know dominant on hard courts in general. He's I just think it's clicking, and it all makes sense by the way that he has these career averages because you look for Alex Zverev. He's 24 years old. That is when the prime of your career starts, and to win 80 percent of your matches here on the season again, it's it's not the Djokovic, Nadal, Federer type of prime yet, but he's inching closer and closer and I just thought this weekend he was absolutely dominant the way he played Carlos Alcaraz again I, the way he was able to absorb the inside in uh, inside out forehand of Alcaraz take that topspin redirect it down the line with even more pace added behind it on his backhand wing that's the stuff you dream about that's the stuff Novak Djokovic does in the lefty forehand of Nadal righty exchange to the Djokovic backhand and it's just again it's when he's clicking the tennis has never been an issue for Alex Zverev, and so dominant performance from him, again, to capture his fifth title of the season, of course, if that's storyline number one, and I think that's enough on Alex Zverev, storyline number two has to be Francis Tiafo and just how exceptional he was at this event for Tiafo reaching his first final, as I mentioned, uh, I believe since the 2008, uh, first final, excuse me, at the ATP, cha- uh, ATP Tour level, not ATP Challenger level, ATP Tour level for him since 2018 in Estoril. He has won a couple of challengers since then, but I mean, for Tiafo. He won six matches in eight days. He comes through qualifying and knocks out Tsitsipas in three, follows it up with a straight set physical win over Schwartzman, and then 6-3-4-1 down. He comes back to knock off Yannick Sinner, 3-6-7-5-6-2. He goes down 3-1, quick break to Alex Virov, and you just think, okay, the balloons pop. This is where the run comes to an end. No, Tiafo gets that break right back, is able to push Virov in both sets one and set two, and you look for Tiafo on an indoor hard court. Of course, you like everyone's first serve a little bit better, but even against you know, Schwartzman and Sinner and Zverev, he's able to win over, you know, 60% of his first serve points in over 50% of his second serve points in two out of the three matches and, you know, fight off the majority of the break points he faces and just extend matches in so many different ways, make his opponents so uncomfortable. And of course, you look for uh, Francis Tiafa, what he excels at doing is exactly that, making you uncomfortable, whether it's the drop shots, the short angles, his ability to you know get to the net in a split seconds moment and his willingness to move forward in a split seconds notice. Of course, his explosion in the outer thirds of the court has always been obvious, but just the forehand has gotten so much better, and his ability to hit that forehand on the run, even when challenged by approach shot pace, I mean, some of the on-the-run forehands he hit in this tournament were just absolutely freaking ridiculous, and just, you know, again, time after time after time, whether it was the tweener, you know, through the legs first volley, then the reaction backhand volley to get the better of Yannick Sinner in the third set, or whether it was the drop volley he hit uh, in that third set as well to secure the break, or just you know, again, the on-the-run forehand crossing pass, uh, short-angle cross-court pass, beats you down the line as well. Just There is not a shot on a tennis court Francis Tiafo cannot hit, and I have to say his ability on that forehand wing to bunt that ball flat, not use his typical forehand grip, but to kind of just slap it and to actually keep that ball on the court and to drive that ball and to turn it into a legitimate forehand drive return, I don't know how he hits it. Like, that's that's the sort of special 
again, thing only Francis Tiafa with his combination of feel and athleticism is able to co- pull off. And you look for Francis, it's not a surprise that his break percentage is at a career high this season, 21.3%, which isn't call home and say, hey, I'm a top 10 returner on tour. It's still outside the top 30 amongst top 50 players, but significantly better. Again, when you're holding serve 81.7% of the time, you're breaking serve 21.3% of the time. You hold just over four out of every five service games. You break just more than one out of every five service games. That's a good equation for Francis Tiafa. It's going to keep him in a lot of matches and just, he's another guy. 24 years old at the start of next season should be when he begins to hit the prime of his career and the results reflect as much you look for Tiafa what he's been able to accomplish here this season now 38 and 25 overall here in 2021 you look for it on this season he's made five different quarterfinals four of them at the ATP level three of them on hard courts one of them on the grass courts over in Queens Club you look for Tiafo just in general again against the players he's supposed to be beating 26 and 14 against players ranked outside the top 50 12 and 11 though against top 50 opponents and you know of course it helps to have the run he just had but six and nine against the top 20 as well look we've seen him do it at the Grand Slams that athleticism always translates in three out of five sets because it's just hard to keep pace with him over the course of that match but Again, his ability, and I suppose we can get into the controversy now, his ability to engage the crowd is second to none. And I really don't think this was a controversy because the only person who talked about their dissatisfaction with Tiafo's uh, willingness to engage the crowd and, you know, 4-1, 40-30, he approaches the net, hits this incredible, you know, approach and plus one volley that Sinner somehow tracks down, hits this ridiculous short angle forehand cross court pass and Tiafa kind of fake slaps a ball at him doesn't actually hit the ball but swings his racket aggressively at the net and you know at that point Sinner's laughing because he's up a set in 4-1 and then you know Sinner does something else ridiculous and Tiafa falls over onto his back onto the court and then you know eventually he's able to take the set lets out the huge roar starts you know giving high fives to people in the crowd as he's hitting these incredible on the run passing shots and Sinner said look I thought it was a little bit too much what Francis did and I do think it's totally fair for Yannick Sinner who was the opponent in this situation to say those things because he was the direct recipient and look when things aren't going well for you you're always going to look for reasons to get angry and certainly when the crowd turns against you that is something that is going to frustrate you you can understand Sinner's frustration at the same time I'm pretty sure he's the only person who actually criticized what Tiafa was doing on the court. There were a lot of straw man arguments over the past couple of days of, oh, are you, if you're criticizing Tiafo, make sure you criticize this, or oh, are you going to criticize this, or oh, are you going to do that? I don't think I actually saw any criticism of Francis Tiafo. No one who runs in my tennis Twitter circles had anything but praise for the way he engages the crowd, and God knows tennis needs personalities like Francis Tiafo, who are showmen, who can understand the grandeur and the pageantry of the sport and can understand these on-the-run moments of brilliance need to be captured with some enthusiasm on the court. And there's nothing wrong with engaging the crowd because once you do it once, now everyone wants to start to get involved. Oh, he's high-fiving the guy in the front row. Well, maybe if I yell out a funny joke the next time Francis Tiafo pumps his fist, he's going to be looking at me when he does it because Francis Tiafo will reward those fans who are willing to engage with him. I don't know anyone who criticized that. Like, how could you look at what Francis Tiafo did and say, that's not incredible for the game moving forward? If everyone did that as players, how would being a, uh, the in-fan experience for for a tennis fan would be 
I think, monumentally better, like exponentially better. How could you argue otherwise? You want players to be engaged. You want them to enjoy and embrace the moment, and that's what Francis Tiafoe does better than anything else. And look, it was gamesmanship. Because from a tennis perspective, Yannick Sinner was kicking his ass. Like, there is no denying that. Up a set, up a break, some of the stuff Sinner was doing on the run, it was an absolute joke. And just, you know, again, for Sinner, boy, is he going to be kicking himself after that result. Felt like he was, you know, he'd won, what, 23 straight sets and 11 straight matches and was cruising towards another final, another matchup with Alex Virov. And the Zverev-Sinner rivalry has been sneaky fun here already early in both of their careers. And... Francis just made the match more than just tennis. He made the match, you know, again, he brought in the intangibles. He brought in the improvisation. He it wasn't sticking to script anymore. And look, when you're 20 years old, you want to stick to script. And when Yannick Sinner's on script, I do think he's the elite of the elite. I do think he's going to surpass Tsitsipas perhaps as soon as next season as one of the guys. Like, I... I feel more confident in Yannick Sinner's upside than I do any player not named Medvedev and Zverev over the next decade. And Djokovic doesn't count because we already know what he's capable of. But that's how high I am on Yannick Sinner. He's made unequivocal strides as a server. He held, what, 44 straight times at one point over the past couple of weeks. But Tiafo made the match more than that. And Tiafo, again, on his backhand wing in particular, his ability to absorb and redirect pace on that side, his backhand's elite. It's not just good, it's elite. And his ability to mix in the slice and play the drop shot in the short angle and hit it on the run, he worked the center backhand wing and he absorbed the center forehand pace so well. Again, some of the -the on-the-run shots Francis was hitting, I just, he's not capable of that in 2019. He's not capable of that in 2020. He is capable of it now here in 2021. And again, you look for Francis, 38 and 25, back into the top 50, number 41 overall, but perhaps most impressively, a top 30 player in the points race as he has worked himself up all the way to 25th in the points race with Paris still on the board as well. Again, Yes, there are still ranking protections in place, but Francis has been a top 30 guy once again, and obviously during 2019 when he made that Australian Open quarterfinal and had the Estoril points and had the Delray Beach points on his record, uh, Francis was a lot closer to, or was inside the top 30, was ranked number 29, excuse me. But this version of Francis Tiafo is a significantly better version than the prior one. And I think that's significant for all of us to take note of moving forward into 2022. Of course, again, for the Sin Man, he's so incredible. Like, I'm I'm sorry, but anyone who's like, oh, he lost this match, and now I'm going to change my take on Yannick Sinner. No, 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 no. Sinner's made nine quarterfinals on the season. Again, that's tied for sixth. He's made, uh, what was it? I said it earlier. I believe he's made, yeah, seven semifinals. That's tied for sixth. You look for him overall in the season. Yannick Sinner, 45 wins. That's tied uh, for, uh, excuse me, that's good for seventh overall on the ATP Tour. Top 15 break percentage, improving serve percentage, which each and every uh, match, and, you know, again, it's career high for him in hold percentage here this year. I'm all in on the sin, man. I'm all in on Carlos Alcaraz, who was spectacular in his win over Matteo Berrettini in the quarterfinals. And, you know, again, didn't even just run out of steams. Europe just was uniquely built to hit a serve big enough to disrupt a returner as good as Carlos Alcaraz. And then again, the inside in out forehand, which is so effective for Carlos Alcaraz, it was, you know, it was bait. For Alex Vierov, who's just striking the ball so cleanly still. For Alcaraz, who came into this season, you look for him in 2020. And of course, he had a breakthrough season in 2020 as he was 39 and 7 overall. But, you know, 
he played only 10 matches on non-clay courts uh, during the 2020 season, and all 10 of those matches were in January at the 15K level, and yeah, he won back-to-back 15Ks, but we knew nothing about Carlos Alcaraz, the hardcourt player. We knew nothing about Carlos Alcaraz, the ATP-level player here this season. He's 18-10 and 10 in the hardcourt matches he's played. All of them have come at the ATP level, if you include Australian Open qualifying. Of course, his most recent results, quarterfinal U.S. Open, now semifinal here in Vienna. Even the semifinal in Winston-Salem bode particularly well for him moving forward. He's 41-18 and 18 overall on the season, 25-16 and 16 in ATP tour-level events. A top 20 guy now by ELO rating, and you look for him in the live rankings. He's currently number 35 overall in the rankings but 20th in the points race, 18 years old as well. I'm all in on Carlos Alcaraz. I'm adding a name to my short list of players who I think are locks to win Grand Slams in the 2020s. That list now, Daniel Medvedev, who's already obviously already accomplished that feat, Alex Virev, uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, Yannick Sinner, Felix Ogier-Aliassime, and now Carlos Alcaraz added to the list of names But again, those are your takeaways from Championship Weekend in Vienna. really was a fantastic event, and it speaks to, again, how exciting uh, the action right now is when we're in the midst of a generational shift, when there are different players week in, week out who can go on these sorts of runs that we know they're capable of, we just haven't seen consistently. And I think the consistency of Zverev, again, I made my big proclamation, just made another big conclusion about Yannick Sinner. He's winning a Grand Slam in 2021. For the record, I already had that conclusion a couple of months, or I'd say about a month ago uh but now i'd say after i saw him at the city open to be honest but now i'm i'm dead certain you can lock that in tiafo you know making the mix and by the way fun stat for all of you uh listeners at home nine different americans have reached an ATT, atp tour final here in 2021 now i looked through the entire 21st century and at the time i did the stat i was looking for eight different americans the last time eight different americans reached atp tour finals in the same season was 1999 by the way that's the last time there were nine american men in the top 60 of the rankings as there is right now but in that 1999 it was sampras agassi courier todd martin jeff tarango vincent spadia chris woodruff and jean michael Gamble. This season, it was Isner, Query, Mackey, Opelka, Fritz, Korda, Brooksby, Nakashima, and now Francis Tiafo as well. What a, what a year for American men's tennis fans. Another conclusion we're drawn. This decade's going to be a lot better than the 2010s if you're an American men's fan, and I do think there are a lot of bites at the apple. Are we going to get a Grand Slam champion? I'm not ready to make that conclusion, but the young guys, Brooksby, Korda, Nakashima, all have a decade until they're 30, and you know, obviously, the still young guys in Opelka, Tiafo, Fritz, Tom DePaul, they all took step forwards here this season. I mean, you've got the 1998s at the challenger level as well. Wolf, who's playing extraordinarily well coming back from injury, he's seemed like a top 100 guy with healthy ditto for Michael Moe. Kovacevic coming up the rankings, and Stefan Kozlov starting to play good tennis again as well. Boy. I mean, Mackey's not old. He's a 95er, and obviously, you know, Ernesto's starting to play a little better, too. All these guys, we knew if you were a hardcore fan, a Colette Lewis reader, 2012, 2013, even as back as 2011, that so many of these guys, you only needed two or three of them to pan out for things to get exciting. And it just feels like we have at least seven, eight nine guys moving into this decade who are going to be competing at the 500s 1000 events and at the right week and making the right sort of runs 
it's really, really exciting time to be a fan of American men's tennis, and that is not something you've been able to say shamelessly much over the past decade. Now I can say it without feeling an ounce of shame. I think we all have those feelings. And of course, speaking of American men's tennis, that's a perfect way for us to transition to the action in St. Petersburg where Marin Cilic was able to earn his second title of the season. Cilic ultimately earning straight set victories over Botic Vanderson Skulp, who had talked about it was not feeling well the day before and hadn't slept much the night before. And so Chilich obviously making the most of that fact, earning the straight set victory there. But then a three set win for him over Taylor Fritz. And you look for Chilich now, who, as I mentioned, uh, moves to nine and one over these past two weeks, over his 10 matches he's played in 14 days in Russia, finals in Moscow, title in St. Petersburg. That has him back up to number 28 in the live rankings, which given, you know, again, Marin Cilic only 33 years old, by the way, and he becomes one of six active players with 20-plus titles. It's the big four plus Delpo plus Cilic. The list makes sense. I mean, he is a first ballot Hall of Famer, Grand Slam champion, three-time finalist, number three player in the world, has won 20 titles. That's not a long list of players who can say that. And just again, you look for Cilic. These were perfect conditions. Slow, indoor hard courts give him extra time to get to the ball gives him that much more time to be effective with his serve with that plus one ball bouncing high into his strike zone I mean you look at the wins inform Botic would have been one I, but an inform Fritz inform RBA in three sets inform Karen Hatchinoff three three set wins in his last four matches and those are matches seven eight and ten of the past two weeks I mean look when Chilich has time to set his feet, it still looks like it looked in 2014, 2015. He could hit that ball. I mean, just again, the speed. The power. He was the original prototype. He was the first guy. The fluidity, this power for that size, it didn't make sense in 2006. Makes a lot more sense here in 2021, 15 years later. But look, Chilich is still capable of playing some extraordinary tennis. And yeah, there was a you know four loss in five match blip for him earlier this season. And uh, certainly some ups and downs, but you know wins the title in Stuttgart, reaches the final in Moscow, wins the title here in St. Petersburg. Was a semifinal for him on clay and Estral, and a loss at the time that seemed strange. Uh, six and five to Cam Nori has certainly appreciated in value, as has his three set win in the first round of that tournament over Carlos Alcaraz. I mean, it's been up and down. There's no denying that for Marin Chilich. You look at his record, 19-7 and against opponents ranked outside the top 50, 13-13 against top 50 opponents. But again, he's 33. Yeah, he's lost a step. But on a slower, hard court, when he gets an extra bit of time to display that step, it's just a lot of firepower for a guy that size. And he did such a good job in this match against Fritz, just taking that ball early on the rise, trying to incorporate the serve and volley, getting Fritz stretched as much as possible with his plus one shot. You look at the stats uh, from the match for Marin Cilic in this one was successful uh, serving throughout the course of the matches. He's able, I believe, yeah, you look for him here on first serve points overall. He's able to win, I want to say... Uh, yeah, he's able to win, leave it all in, Westoff, 77.6% of his first serve points. And by the way, over the course of his matches in Russia, he's winning about 78% of his first serve points for the 14 days. Now, Fritz did a really good job of punishing second serves. And, you know, for Chilich, he only wins 38.5% of his second serve points. Actually, he's broken tw- uh, five times on 12 breakpoint chances. 
Uh, but both guys were swinging freely on the return of serve. And what Taylor Fr- uh, Chilich did such a good job was also punishing Taylor Fritz second serves in this match. And for Fritz, yes, he wins 50% of those second serve points, but a lot of that was stat padded. It felt like in set number two, Fritz two of seven on break points saved in the match. So again, both guys break and serve five times. Chilich was swinging freely. He was swinging confidently. He kept the pressure on Fritz. Fritz did a good job of extending points physically and, again, trying to put pressure on Chilich with that plus one, uh, ret- or with his return of serve in particular, trying to take it early and, you know, down the line and just force Chilich to be stretched on the first ball. But Chilich absorbed it well. And, again, Marin Chilich able to earn the title now. On the flip side for Taylor Fritz, Wins over Tommy Paul, wins over John Millman, wins over Jan Leonard Struff, makes a final here in St. Petersburg. I believe it's his first final since Acapulco of last season. And you look for Taylor Fritz, he's still looking for his second ATP Tour title. Now one in five, I believe, in the six finals he has made. But again, it's progress for him. First final of the season inside uh, the top 30, currently at number 26, which is two off of his career high. Doesn't have that many points to defend. At the start of next season, you look for Fritz here in 2021 at the start of the year. Third round Australia, beat Opelka, lost Djokovic in five sets. Uh, semifinals for him in Doha, I suppose, is a big result. But round of 16, Dubai, round of 16, Miami, those feel like very achievable results for Fritz. And round of 16 in Australia, absolutely in the cards, just given how well he's played. Indian Wells semifinal, St. Petersburg final over his past two events. Taylor Fritz is here to stay, and again, I made this joke on Twitter, but coach of the year's got to probably be his knee surgeon, who, I don't know what he did, but he did something right, and so again, uh, for Taylor Fritz, good result for him, up to number 26, competing for that top-ranked American spot right now, I believe it's Zero, uh, Isner, excuse me, in the live ranking, sitting at number 24, it is indeed 23, Opelka 25, Fritz 26, interesting. Interesting, interesting time again for American tennis fans. But that is your action over in St. Petersburg. I wish I could give you more on Jan Leonard Struff. I still don't know what a good week looks like when those good weeks are happening. Great serving and volleying from him in the semifinals, but it was a credit to Fritz that he kind of figured out that play from Struff, started getting better depth, better pace on his return of serve, and then started hitting some incredible on-the-run lobs. Uh, Taylor Fritz, defensive specialist, not something we thought we'd say, but perhaps that's capable of what you're capable of in St. Petersburg. And then again, first semifinal at the ATP level for Botik Vandesen. Sculpt, you look for BVDZ here now on the season. He is top 75 in the points rates. Botik currently, I believe, overall in points. Let's see. Yes, on the season, Botik Vandesen Sculpt 46th overall in the points race. You look for Vandesen Sculpt 59th in the live rankings. That's a career high for him. I mean, yeah, definitely, you know, the 26-year-old, one of the winners of this 2021 season, but that was your action over in St. Petersburg. It's rapid fire down the home stretch here about our ATP Challenger action. Got to give a shout out to friend of the program, JJ Wolf, and it's just worth remembering. Uh, JJ Wolf, who on his way to the title, wins over Kudla, Escobedo, Mo, and Kozlov. Those are his American peers. JJ Wolf now 51 and 22 in his career. Uh, at the challenger level. You want to go since the start of the 2019 season, which is, of course, when JJ started to click both in the college world and really as a professional. JJ's 46-12 and 12 
in challengers during that stretch of time. Now, the majority, if not all of those matches, I believe, yeah, all, no, all of them have been played on hard courts, but he's 46 and 12 at the challenger level. He's reached six different finals, now five and one in those challenger finals as well. He's also reached, let's see, seven different semifinals, eight different quarterfinals. Yeah, seven and one in his eight quarterfinals, six and one in his seven semifinals, five and one in his six finals. He's back into the top 200, number 195 on the year. And of course, JJ had a bunch of different injuries that kept him out for a bit of time, but seemed to have all of the momentum on his side at the start of 2020 and you know has reached as high as number 120 in the rankings in 2020 before he just missed too much time here this season you can look for JJ here in 2021 uh, overall on the season I believe yeah 10 and 8 overall on the year just hasn't been able to play that many matches due to the injury but he's healthy again starting to work his way back towards the top 200 and again that record on challengers uh, since the start of the 2019 season just absolutely stupid that JJ Wolf has what again 45 and 12 uh, during that stretch of time just that's elite folks that is as good as it gets if you are JJ Wolf at the challenger level so again um, we're just waiting to see him get those opportunities to compete again once uh, on the ATP tour the serve the forehand the weapons he plays with it's just ATP speed, and if you don't have the ability to keep up with him, he's going to blast the ball by you. That's what he was able to do against Mo. That's what he was able to do against Kozlov. Kudla gave him a run, but even in the end there, the power tennis of J.J. Wolf, too much. Fantastic week for him. Fantastic week for Kozlov as well, and we're contemplating always here, is Kozlov back? I mean, you look for him 30 and 14 here in 2021, his last few results. Round of 16 coming through qualifying at the Lexington Challenger rough stretch for him the next couple of weeks after that but wins the challenger title in columbus win over jj wolf in three set beat torp beat kruger uh then you know seven five in the third set loss to chris eubanks uh at indian wells final round qualifying then comes here to vegas wins over McHugh, where he fought off what eight match points straight set win over gomez straight set win over kovacevic what's been so impressive for me for Kozlov, the improvements he's made on serve here this season. He's holding serve 73.3% of the time, winning 77, uh, 67.6% of his first serve points, 50.9% of his second serve points. There's just a fluidity to the serve now and an easy pop to that serve. That comes, by the way, when you turn 23 years old, when you get ready to turn 24 years old. You can just tell physically the body has matured. He's cut down on the body fat. He looks more muscular, looks thinner as well. I think that's translating across the board. Feel has never been an issue for Stefan Kozlov. The actual playing of the tennis, that's the easy part. It's some of the, you know, the serve and the intangible, uh, not the intangible stuff, but just, again, the extracurricular stuff, figuring out what to do and when the appropriate moment for each of his various skills are. That's been the difficult part. He's starting to put it together back inside the top 250, 247 right now in the live rankings. Should get into Australian Open qualifying. And again, slam qualifying is the gateway to the top 100. Kozlov has put himself in a position to get back towards where he belongs. It reached a career high of number 115 back in 2017 when he was still just 19 years old. And so, I'm sorry, the best 12-year-old I've ever seen on a tennis court. I still have faith in Stefan Kozlov. Uh, you look at the other results we saw on the weekend in Vegas. Again, big run for Alexander Kovacevic. You look for Kova, the recently graduated Illinois All-American. He now up to a new career high ranking, uh, or approaching his career high ranking, number 344 right now in the live rankings. 
you know, again, once you crack that top 300, you really can play a full-time challenger level calendar. And then again, as you continue to succeed through there and for Kova, who has essentially no points to defend between now and the start of June next season, that means opportunities for growth. That means making a push towards the top 200, putting himself in a position to consistently play challenger level events in ATP uh, tour qualifying and of course, Grand Slam qualifying in for Kova, still just 23 years old, another one of those 1998ers. And by the way, him, Mo, Wolf, Kozlov, all born 1998, all Americans, has to be the first time you've had four 1998 players from the, representing the same country, all in the semifinals of one event. I will leave it on you listeners to check whether that is true or false, but it was a super exciting uh, weekend of action over in Las Vegas, of course, over in France. Yet another title from Brandon Nakashima on the ATP Challenger Tour, his third ATP Challenger title in the past 52 weeks. You look for me, won Orlando at the end of last season, won France, Quimper 2 at the start of this year, now wins the title here in Brest. And look for Brandon would have made a lot of sense just given all the tennis he's played 43 and 23 that's you know 66 matches on a 20 year old's body 19 year old for the majority of the season would have made sense for him to shut it down when he realized he wasn't going to get into Paris qualifying and yeah the next gen finals are on the horizon but it's been a lot of tennis for Brandon he has already cracked you know the top 100 of the rankings top 85 and has put himself in a position to make another breakthrough jump in 2022 and yet Nakashima says, nah, no thanks. I think I'm going to play another uh, event here this season. I think I'm going to go play the challenger and look, doesn't drop a set on his way to the title. And uh, hardcore is always going to be his preferred surface, excuse me, looked particularly good on the indoor hard courts. And again, up to number 65, that's a career high ranking for him. 52nd, I believe in the points race is Brandon, 51st, excuse me, in the points race is Brandon Nakashima. I mean, yeah, top 50 is a minimum in terms of what we expect him to accomplish next season. I don't know about the top 30 push because we still need to see him more on clay, need to see him more on grass courts, but I think he's done with the ATP Challenger Tour. I think we're going to see him play ATP Tour events from here on out, and he's earned it. He deserves to be there, Brandon Nakashima, one of the breakout stars of the season, no doubt. Of course, another player who's been excellent here this year, Oscar Ota, and you look for Ota coming off of the round of 16 at the U.S. Open. He then goes to the uh, Vienna Challenger, makes semifinals there, plays here and wins. Uh, The Ismaning Challenger wins over Cressy and Lucas Lachko to earn the title. You look for Oscar Ota. He was broken four times in his five victories on the week, and just, you know, again, won 90% of his first serve points twice, won 87% of his first serve points for the event. Yeah, that'll get the job done. And you look for Lachiko now, 28 years old, up to number 135 in the rankings. That's six off his career high from October of 2017. But you look for him, doesn't really have points to defend until May. One exactly one match between the start of 2021 and April 26th. Uh, he was 1-5 in five in his thir- first six matches and now has round of 16 points at a slam in the, his back pocket, has a challenger title and a challenger semifinal for points in his back pocket as well. First serious points come off the board for him. Prague, which was May 3rd, 2021, he made the final of that challenger. Oscar Ota's got a circle to make his first top 100 push. Not quite an Aslan Karasev jump, but definitely has put himself in the position to make a big jump at the start of next season. You also have Nicolas Jari, who, of course, was top 40 player, reached number 38 in 2019 before being suspended for doping. He's 40 and 18 
here in 2021. You look for him overall on the season now. He's made four different challenger finals, wins his second challenger title this past week in Lima, knocks out Juan Manuel Serendolo in the final, gets wins over Capriva, Tabilo as well. With his win, he's back up to number 202 in the live rankings, number 111 though on points accumulated here this season. I mean, October 11th, 1995, shout out six days, uh, five days younger than me, but October 11th happens to be one of my closest friend's birthdays and also happens to be the day that my bar mitzvah was. Nevertheless, you look for Nicolas Iari. I mean, his first serve, his forehand are tour level weapons, and that was the difference between him and Surindolo. Surindolo made the match a grind, but Jari was the one who was able to end points on command. And just, you look for Juan Manuel Surindolo for the 19-year-old, 51-22 and 22 here this season. Now, I believe on clay courts, he's, yeah, 51-21. and 21, So all but one match has been played on clay. But you look for him overall for the 19-year-old to, you know, win Cordoba, right, into the start of February and since then reach five different challenger finals, win three different challenger titles, makes that run in South America on the clay make that look that much more legit. And as such, he's broken into the top. 100 for the first time top uh, top 100 he's number 85 we're going to get to see him play a hardcore event at the next gen finals we're going to get to see him play hardcore events at the start of next season and he's able to play atp level events but look he did it the hard way he played made the most you know i'm a clay court guy right now this is how I, my pathway to the top 100 and he succeeded in doing that helps to win an atp title Helps to follow it up, though, with five challenger finals, three challenger titles elsewhere in the year as well. So, again, credit to Juan Manuel Serendolo for a big week. But in the end, it's Nicolás Yari. And Serendolo, really nice three-set win over Juan Pablo Varias in the semifinals. But Nicolás Yari, in the end, earning the title in Lima. That is all of your challenger action. Quickly, home stretch here. ITF results we saw unfold. I want to start with Rinki Hijikata. I know I mentioned this earlier, but the rising junior at UNC Hijikata now 31 and 10 since the start of uh, of June you look for him overall during that stretch that includes three different futures titles uh excuse me four different futures titles in three different finals uh if four different futures finals in five finals if he won four and three that'd be particularly impressive but four in five finals and by the way I think I'm actually a little bit short here now because I don't see the 25k results updated for Hijikata so if he went what five and oh last week He's now 36 and 10 in the start of the season, uh, since uh, the start of the summer. And just you look for him to have that sort of success at the future circuit. He now is up to a new career high ranking, is Hijikata. I believe he's currently sitting, yeah, at number 374, 20 years old, top 400. If you're top 300, you're getting into challenger events, you're on the precipice of Grand Slam qualifying at every slam. It's tough to return to college. Of course, you like challenger titles, really, if you're going to leave, because if you're winning challenger titles, now you can play ATP Tour events. You can start making serious money, of course. Hijikata does have some support from Tennis Australia, and you know he told Parsa that he plans on coming back next season, but 374 right now in the rankings. Just the momentum he has on his side. He's a guy who's won Australian Open qualifying matches before, and of course, he will get a wild card probably into Australian Open qualifying Maybe that's the final test. If he makes main draw there, I don't know how he comes back to school. If he 
doesn't win a match, maybe he does come back and just plays a bunch of pro events throughout the course of the year. But, I mean, Ford Hijikata uh, throughout the course of the week in Calabasas. Straight set win over Nate Ponwith. Gets a win over Tristan Boyer in the final as well. Straight set over Omni Kumar. Three sets over Pepperdine's Daniel DeJong. Straight set win for him over Rejski in his first match as well. He dominated. And that's what you'd expect from a guy who's had the amount of success he has over the past few months. By the way, in that final, shout out to Stanford's Tristan Boyer, who certainly wasn't at his best last season, but you know, especially with how the things ended against Rodesh, but three-set win for him over Govin Nanda, also got a win over Jamie Floyd Angel, uh, also got a win, I believe, earlier uh, in the event, did Boyer three sets over the always feisty Felix Corwin, so great result for him. Great result for Vassal Kirkov as well, who stops the run of former Florida Gator Johannes Ingledson. Three-set win for him in the final. He also got wins over uh, Henry Patton in the semis. Got a three-set win over the always-informed Ben Shelton of late in round number in the third round. Straight sets over McNally in round number two, and then a victory uh, in his first round for Kirkov. Three and three over Liam Draxel. I mean, 18 and 14 in your last 52, so now add five wins. 23 and 14 over your last 52. You're not, you know, running home about that, but you look for Vassal Kirkov now with this title here up to new career high. Number 503 in the rankings. You look for Kirkov. I believe it is the second title of his career, uh, matching the title he won in Cancun back in 2019, but it's his first 25K title. That Cancun event was a 15K event. Kirkov's game is tricky. He's got feel. He's got finesse. He likes to serve and volley, get into the net. It's just, it's a funky game style. I'm still a believer in Vassal Kirkov, who despite feeling like, a, you know, he's fallen out of the ecosystem, he's what, 22 years old here now, this year? I just feel like there's still more upside to uh, get to for Vassal Kirkov. I'll keep an eye on him, of course, again, in the final. Kirkov able to knock off Joe Englandson. What a run for Englandson to knock off Ryan Shane in the semifinals and you know for him I believe in the second round to beat Alexandra Recco and first round for Englandson got a win over Cannon Kingsley super and super impressive run for the former Florida Gator of course that was your men's action on the women's side Misaki Doi she earns the title at the ADK in Tyler, Texas. She earns victory over Masala Zarkarius uh, in the semis. Harriet Dart in the final. Dart, a three-set win over the always dangerous Beatrice Haddad Maya in the semifinals. Of course, at the 25K in Austin. Hell of a run for Kylie Collins. Makes it to the semifinals. Does the rising Texas sophomore before getting knocked out by Kayla Day. Then uh, knocked out in three sets is Kayla Day by Miriam Borkland in the finals. But that's where things stand. After last week's action across the professional tennis world, again, so good, we had to go over two hours to recap all of the weekend's actions. Part one, of course, of these mini break podcasts available over uh, here on our mini break podcast feed. You can find uh, on that episode my conversation with David Kane, talking about Annette Contebe and all the news made of late over the past month on the WTA tour. Of course, Challenger recap available on the Great Shot podcast feed. All of that content available on the website, crackrackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, uh, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, so you don't miss out on any of our content. If you need the more media updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends over at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for 
Super Producers Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. One last shout-out I forgot to give to our main man, Will Blumberg, who earns a three-set victory with Max Schnur in the final of the ATP Challenger in Las Vegas. It's his third ATP doubles title, playing his third tournament as a professional. Yeah. Will Blumberg, we always knew he was going to have success, quick success coming for him in doubles. Shout out to our main man. But with all that said, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com.